How hard is it, though, to come back to the same world that pushed you into the depths of darkness to start with? Mm, yeah. The world doesn't push you into the depths of darkness. You do. I had neck surgery, all right? I'm laying in the hospital the day after, and I'm taking no more than four pain pills a day. 200, 200 pills a day? No, it's a little extreme, okay? And they blame it on, on the industry? No, it's your choice, all right? I'm, I've been doing this 18 years. You know, I think I got a pretty good grasp, and I think I'm—I'm I'm not an outsider looking in. So that's all—that's—that's that's all BS, complete BS. It's your choice. It's your decision. And that you know, the media love—they love to take something like that and run with it. And it's—it's not—it's not the world of wrestling drove them to alcohol, or the world of wrestling drove them to drugs. Ah, uh, no, no, you do that to yourself. Disclaimer. In this chapter, we will be telling you a story that involves drug abuse, domestic violence, violence in general, murder, and suicide. This will be the only warning. Please do not listen if you are sensitive to this topic. Hey guys, uh, this week I've decided to take a little bit of a detour and dive into the world of professional wrestling. Specifically, we're going to be talking about the Chris Benoit case. Is it case or cases? I have no idea what this is going to be. It's a case. It was he caught a, a case. It, he caught a case. It's <laughs> it's a kind of a one event um, labeled a double murder suicide. So. This is actually going to be another two-parter, um, but don't worry. Part two is going to be released tomorrow morning, so you don't have to wait the full week. But in part one, we're going to go over some wrestling history. We're going to talk about um, the the amount of deaths that happen um, with young wrestlers and also drug abuse and uh, head trauma, brain injury. Stuff like that. Part two, we'll get into the crimes of Chris Benoit. But for now, here we go with part one. So basically in 1948, Stampede Wrestling was created in Calgary by Stu Hart as a part of the NWA regime, um, which dominated the wrestling industry at the time. Stu was the patriarch of the Hart family. With his wife, Helen, they raised 12 children um, on the outskirts of Calgary. The Hart Homes basement was made into the legendary wrestling school that came to be known as the Dungeon. The Dungeon produced some of the world's most popular and successful wrestlers in history, such as the popular Hart Foundation, uh, which included Bret Hart, Owen Hart, Davy Boy Smith, who was also uh, the British Bulldog, uh, Brian Pillman, and Jim Neidhart, all of whom went on to be wrestling superstars. Among the list of stars trained in the dungeon was the dynamite kid, Tom Billington, who in the late 1970s caught the eye of a young teenager from Edmonton, Alberta. Chris Benoit was then 12 to 13 years old, uh, convinced his dad, Mike, to take him to see Stampede Wrestling one weekend in Calgary. Stampede Wrestling was also a traveling show and would have bouts in Edmonton as well. During one of the shows, Chris and his dad were in the front row. Chris, by this time, was a super fan of the Dynamite Kid. Stu Hart uh, later said that this kid came up to him and told him what a big fan he was and asked if he could meet the Dynamite Kid. And in true kind Calgarian form, 
Stu took Chris backstage to meet his idol. After that day, uh, Mike Benoit said his son was never the same. He purchased a weight set for Chris, and Chris became determined to become the next Dynamite Kid. By the time Chris was 18, he had joined the Dungeon Wrestling School and began his wrestling career under the wings of the Hart family and the Dynamite Kid. I remember watching Stampede Wrestling when I was a kid. Uh, the voice of Ed Whalen, who was very familiar to me as the voice of the Calgary Flames NHL team, would call the matches on TV, even making it more exciting for me to watch. Um, my great aunt actually has a connection to the Hart family as well. She babysat the eldest Hart boy, his name Smith, in the mid to late 1950s. For myself, one of the Hart brothers was a substitute teacher, and another was a phys ed teacher. Uh, fun facts. I also met Owen Hart one time in an awkward elevator incident at the West Edmonton Mall, where my ex-husband at the time went total fangirl on the poor guy who was just holding a tray full of plates with Edo or some other kind of Asian food, clearly just wanting to get back to his room. And now the guy is stuck in an elevator with this woman, her little girl and husband, who is literally giggling like a schoolgirl. It was it was kind of embarrassing, but really cool. Like, he was a really yeah. nice guy. And he, I mean, he... He chit-chatted, are you enjoying them all, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, so I've always felt because of my auntie babysitting for them, and like I don't know them, but I've always felt like connected. They're Calgarians, they're super famous. And You decided to name a daughter after Brett, the hitman heart. So like, yeah, no, I get it. <laughs> okay, so like in fairness, that daughter, I was told that daughter was going to be a boy, and we had it so that if it was a girl, I got to name her. If it was a boy... He got to name her. The child was supposed to be a boy. So ex-husband picked the name. He was a super fan of Bret Hart. So the kid was named after Bret Hart. Yeah. <laughs> That's my story. Trash. Stick into <laughs> it. Um, so in 1989, the Stampede Wrestling show was no more. Vince McMahon actually bought Stampede Wrestling but it ended up selling it back to the Hearts just a year later. The older Hart brothers tried to make a go of it over the years, but because of the hugely successful WWF or World Wrestling Federation, which is now known as the World Wrestling Entertainment, Stampede Wrestling was never the same. When Stampede Wrestling ended, Chris Benoit went off to wrestle for New Japan Pro Wrestling. It was here that he met his good friend Eddie Guerrero, a fellow wrestler. During his Stampede Wrestling and New Japan Pro Wrestling careers, uh, Chris would go on to win multiple titles. In 1992 to 2000, Chris would wrestle with the WCW and ECW as an up-and-comer for the world-famous WWF slash E. At some point, I'll be able to refer to it as just the WWE, but it's important to note that it was the World Wrestling Federation up to a certain point. Um, so starting in 2000, Chris would go on to win title after title, becoming one of the fan favorites. I think because of his acrobatics and his technical skill, he was a very exciting wrestler to watch and he wasn't the biggest of guys. Like he was, he was considered short. I need to, I need to pull up a photo so I can see what we're even talking about. He was considered quite short compared to the other big name superstars like Hulk Hogan and that. So <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, hot! 
actually a disturbing photo. That photo right there <laughs> is his last televised match before he committed his crimes. He has little T-Rex arms like me. Hmm. It's so bad. That is the is funniest so shit I've ever seen in my life. What is he? Fucking two foot four? <laughs> I, I think he's five foot nine. I'm not sure. But I think- <laughs> no wee. <laughs> I guess they... <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, he wasn't the biggest guy, um, but because of yeah, because of his size though, and same with his best friend Eddie Guerrero. Eddie was even smaller than Chris Benoit, but this made it easy for them to like fly through the air and do these these crazy moves like the <laughs> flying headbutt and but like they look like little boulders how do you I mean know. that they were good at acrobats i know and maybe like well you should i'll have watch. to watch a couple of clips because like yeah. i'm not seeing it but i'll i'll watch a couple of clips yeah it's a i mean it i don't want to say it was impressive to me it was impressive but it was exciting to watch because they could do these things flying through the air and landing a hit or landing a flying headbutt you just think like this guy's crazy but athletic uh, agile i'm like in my head i'm just hearing roid mouse like over and over again <laughs> <laughs> so that's not nice <laughs> that's not nice no that's mice <laughs> <laughs> okay So like I said, Chris would go on to win title after title, and he did become one of the fan favorites. So there's good guys, and then there's what the WWE calls heels. The heels are the bad guys. And Chris Benoit never got to be a heel. He was always a good guy. Okay. Oh, no, yeah, I get get what that is. Yeah, because, like, that's how they start bringing in, like, wrestlers like Logan Paul. He's like, here's the enemy. Everybody's like, Boo. yeah, Stone Cold Steve Austin. And, oh yeah, and, okay. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but that turned sideways too, and that's a completely different story. But, anyways, um, so by 2000, on February 25th, Chris's son Daniel would be born. Chris had been in a relationship with Nancy Tafaloni since 1997, and on November 23rd, 2000, the two got married. Chris had two children from a previous marriage as well. I could go into the story of Chris and Nancy's whole affair here. Um, But basically, Nancy was married to a guy named Kevin Sullivan at the time. Sullivan was a wrestler, but he was also a booker and a promoter. A booker means this guy is the one who writes the storylines for wrestling. Um, So he wrote a storyline in which his wife... Um, whose ring name at the time was known simply as Woman, (laughs) would have an affair with his on-screen nemesis, Chris Benoit. Kevin had insisted that they really sell the storyline, encouraging the pair to spend time together, um, go out for dinner together, even share hotel rooms together, and make sure the media saw it. He wanted to sell the storyline. Until finally it wasn't a script anymore. They, Mm. They started an affair, and there's actually... People say he wrote his own divorce. Uh, Kevin has said that they were having a lot of marital issues prior to this. Um, There was some domestic violence claims by Nancy. Um, Kevin has never, you know, said one way or the other, which they, they very rarely will admit to it unless there's a police report or something. But um, Nancy's sister was able to back up some of the claims 
But in any case, their marriage wasn't doing very well. Kevin wrote this storyline. They played it out really well, ended up falling in love. Like I said, they um, had Daniel, their first child, on February 25th. And then later on that year, on November 23rd, they got married. So while Chris was enjoying success in the wrestling ring, behind the scenes, he was suffering from injuries and was routinely taking pain medication and testosterone just to be able to keep working. The substances seemingly began to take a toll on Chris's mental well-being. So, and when I'm talking about injuries, I'm talking about like the guy had to have neck surgery. Um, he was always injured as are most of these wrestlers. They're, they've got head injuries, they've got neck injuries, arm, whatever, and they're just popping pills so that they can go to work, mm -hmm. you know? So, but, um, obviously over time, all that stuff has to start playing in your mind and, and making changes maybe, right? Yeah. Uh, during the very first WWE draft, he was the third wrestler picked by Vince McMahon to be part of the new SmackDown roster, um, although still on the injured list. However, when he returned, he did so as a member of the Raw roster. So I don't know the exact days, but basically the WWE started having these weekly shows like Saturday SmackDown or Sunday Night Raw, or maybe it was Monday Night Raw. I can't remember, but there were these different levels of wrestlers on like SmackDown would have really great stars like superstars where Raw was more of an up and coming or the older guys going out. Um, you know what I mean? Like it was just not a different class of wrestler maybe, but just a different group of wrestlers that you'd see on Raw compared to SmackDown. A cheaper ticket. Um, that's a good way to put it. Right, <laughs> right. Um, so on his first night back, Benoit defeated Rob Van Dam on July 29th, 2002, um, on a Raw episode uh, to become the Intercontinental Champion for the fourth time. He and Guerrero were then moved to SmackDown. So they went from Raw to SmackDown as champions. Nice. Chris continued on this path of working hard through his injuries, self-medicating, but being the perfect worker, and that he never missed a match. Um, all of his uh, co-wrestlers and anybody backstage, anybody that worked with Chris, always said what a great guy he was. He was a little bit quiet, very intense, very disciplined, but a nice guy. They never saw him truly angry. Surprising. Mm -hmm. <laughs> with the steroids. However, in 2003, Nancy filed for divorce. Citing the marriage was irrevo irrevocably broken. She claimed she was treated cruelly by Chris and that his erratic behavior and mood swings resulted in furniture being broken and included Chris threatening her. Believe it. Believe it. Um, so basically Chris was at this time now, he's trying to get a hold of Nancy and she's not taking his calls. He calls Nancy's sister and convinces her to kind of set up a meeting. And within a couple of days, they're actually back together. And Nancy Aww. revokes the divorce and um, lifts the restraining order, or she files to have that done, and it's granted. So they're back together. Wow. Right. So, and I mean, her sister said to this day, she... She regrets doing that, like wonders if that would have just been the end of it, if she wouldn't have intervened on Chris's behalf. Yeah. Um, so, but 
So here I'm going to tie in the alarming number of wrestlers who die at a young age. Um, I realize that Nancy and Chris did not die of natural causes. But there are some striking correlations, I think, between this situation and what might have caused it to how so, so many wrestlers die very, very young. Um, according to a 2014 study by the Eastern U Michigan University that examined professional wrestlers who were active between 1985 and 2011, mortality rates for professional wrestlers are up to 2.9 times greater than the rate for people in the general population. Experts suggest that a combination of the physical nature of the business with no off-season and potentially high workload with some wrestlers fighting more than 100 and even 200 matches per year, along with drug culture in wrestling during the 70s and 80s and even early 90s, contributes to high mortality rates. A pain medication addiction, heavy alcohol use, and anabolic steroid use are common contributing factors in all of these deaths. So I was able to find lists and lists of wrestlers who died at a young age. There are about 200 names listed that were between the ages of 30 and 45 years old. A small number were due to causes such as cancer or a car accidents, even murder in four cases. But the overwhelming majority died from such things as heart failure, heart attacks, overdose, and suicide. Nothing? You got nothing? That's crazy. I mean, it, no, it's, to me, it's not crazy. It and that's sense. just that age group. There are, so I took, I took the age groups between 30 to 50, and then I cut down the ages, like on the 50, 40 to 50 list, I cut down the ages and only included the numbers from 45 down. Cause I'm just talking about this particular group of people. Um, but it's not surprising because these are people who are living a certain lifestyle that increases your risk mm -hmm. of death and i mean they're choosing to take you know steroids and drugs and stuff like this so it's like i do but i mean in it's my so mind even, me. especially when i was really into the wwf um you look at these people and even now when you see these guys that are just you know ripped and buff and they're working out all the time i see that as a healthy human being oh, i don't God, i don't no. automatically associate steroid use and heart disease and heart failure and heart attack with a 35 year old guy who goes to the gym and works out and might be absolutely, you know, ripped, you know, maybe they do, maybe they don't, I don't know. But to but me, these numbers are absolutely shocking because they're professional athletes. They're the part of their job is to be healthy. But okay. So look at a athlete, a real athlete that's in hockey or the Olympics and stuff mm -hmm. like that, there is a very distinct difference between those athletic, super healthy people and these juice heads who have veins popping out of their huge muscles. Fair. You do not achieve that through diet and exercise alone. Fair. And very fair. Honestly, in health class here, I don't know why our teacher spent so much time talking about steroids and um, drug use with being athletic, but he taught us so much about the risks and dangers of that stuff that I just, I feel like 
we were always very well educated. Well educated. I wasn't when it, you know what I mean. You see mm-hmm. somebody with muscles and they go to the gym all the time and they're a professional athlete. You just think he must be healthy, but these numbers just absolutely blew my mind. Thank you, Mister Valeric. <laughs> Shout out! Shout out! Um, I think, like in my opinion, it's safe to say that anybody who becomes suicidal and those who actually commit suicide suffer from some level of mental illness. For someone to actually take their own life, um, the natural self-preservation instinct that most human beings have is missing. I'm not a scientist or a psychologist, so I can't really talk much on the subject, but my own opinion, people go through with the act of ending their own lives, do not have normally functioning brains. When it comes to contact sports like football and even hockey or pro wrestling, head injuries are common. CTE is the term used to describe brain degeneration likely caused by repeated head traumas. CTE is a diagnosis that can only be made at an autopsy, so after death, studying sections of the brain. So there's no MRI or CAT scan or anything like that that can actually show CTE um, while somebody is living. Um, CTE is a rare disorder, though, that is not yet very well understood. CTE has a complex relationship with head traumas such as persistent post-concussive symptoms and second impact syndrome that occur earlier in life. Experts are still trying to understand how repeated head traumas, including how many head injuries and the severity of those injuries and other factors might contribute to the changes in the brain that result in CTE. Um, CTE has been found in the brains of people who played football and other contact sports, including wrestling. Some signs and symptoms of CTE are thought to include difficulties with thinking or cognition and emotions, physical problems, and other behaviors um, like forgetfulness and even aggression. It's thought that these symptoms develop years to decades after head trauma occurs. So in reading this, I can't help but wonder about compound injury effects of athletes with CTE. Like we don't know they have CTE, um, meaning so no matter what sport we're talking about or even activity, especially back like when I was a kid or you were a kid or anybody, if you fall or get hit in the head or like get your bell rung back in the day, we would just be told to shake it off, get back out there or you'll be okay, take some Tylenol. And when you guys were kids, I knew that if you hit your head that I wasn't supposed to let you fall asleep for a certain amount of time and then monitor you. But, I mean, that's as far as it went, right? And now we know that if you get a couple different head traumas, the doctor is eventually going to tell you that you need to actually retire your athletic career because they they do recognize now that one too many head injuries can lead to long-term effects. Yeah, but even... so Now they're like that. So if we're... If we're getting hit in the head, and I don't care if we're talking about athletes or kids, yep, whatever. Anybody. If you get hit in the head and you take five minutes and you shake it off, whatever, and you go back out there and then you do something so much as hurt hurt your back or hurt your shoulder or your neck or something, and all of those muscles and everything are they're connected to your brain, all those nerves and all the messages, they all come through your brain. So I just wonder if those are compounding and aggravating that CTE damage that could be starting. You know what I mean? Like 
the compound injuries is something that they're studying right now too, but just to see what these effects could possibly be. And if you look at it in the realm of professional wrestling, some of these guys are using their heads as battering rams, literally. Chris Benoit himself had the signature move I talked about before, where he would dive off the top rope or even the top of a steel cage during a steel cage match and land, like do a flying headbutt on his opponent. Of course, that's going to ring your bell, like intensely ring your bell. They used to plan and script getting hit in the head with steel folding chairs. Um, They would brace themselves for it. They knew it was coming, but it's still an impact to the head. Chris actually had taken a few months off of work um, to try and heal some of his nagging injuries and had that neck surgery uh, performed, like I had said before. He also said he was using the time off to get clean of taking steroids. So he was an admitted steroid user. Um, and pain medication. So the time off had the opposite effect though. Uh, Chris started drinking alcohol along with taking the pain medication as well. Chris was regularly injecting testosterone in high quantities by this time as well. Over the years, Chris attended many funerals of colleagues. Um, Just in the few short years leading up to this tragedy we're talking about today, the following wrestlers passed away. So Owen Hart, I'm including him because of Chris Benoit's ties and closeness to the Hart family. He died in 1999 uh, during a failed stunt. Owen plummeted 70 feet to the wrestling ring mat after a cable meant to safely lower him to the ring uh, from the rafters failed. Owen was 34 at the time. Um, Gary Albright died in 2000 at age 36 from a heart attack. Bobby Duncan Jr. died of a drug overdose at age 34. Davy Boy Smith, or the uh, British Bulldog, suffered a fatal heart attack at age 39 in 2002. Mr. Perfect Kurt Henning died of cocaine overdose at age 44 in 2003. Tony Durant uh, died of an overdose in 2003 at age 36. Um, Crash Holly. Mike Lockwood is his real name, died by suicide at age 32 in 2003. Um, Ray Taylor Jr. or the big boss man had a heart attack in 2004 at age 41. So these are the names of wrestlers that had heart attacks or, or similar way too young or committed suicide, uh, drug overdoses, but they worked directly with Chris at the time of their deaths. There are many more names of people who died between 2000 and 2004 from accidents, ca- uh, cancer, kidney failures, and other causes that I'm sure Chris Benoit knew and paid respects to attended funerals, but just to maybe lay out a mental path of the sudden death type of grief that some of us have had to endure, all grief is hard. Um, it's a process. But with the sudden death of young friends, family, and coworkers, I feel like it hits a little bit differently. And it seems like this big family of professional wrestlers was surrounded by death and grief for many years, like numerous people dying every single year. I mean, you take those drugs and you I, and take I mean, that amount yeah. of steroids, and yeah, there's a reason why everybody's having heart attacks. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to make excuses or glazing over the facts, but now I'm trying to get more into a, how do you make your way out of grief when it's, it's never, 
it's never over. There's always another one. There's always another one. Do you become prone to it? Do you become numb to it? Or do you let it sink in? And I think that's kind of where we're going to, we're going to have wouldn't right have now. the ability to deal with it properly though, because your mind and everything would have been altered by this point by the drugs and the CTE possibly. Yeah. But mostly the drugs and the steroids. Totally. So, and I mean, nothing could have prepared Chris for the loss of his best friend, Eddie in 2005. Um, just like no one realized how hard Chris would take this death. Eddie met Chris Benoit when they both wrestled for the new pro Japan wrestling throughout the nineties. He became hooked on a legal form of GHB along with anabolic steroids throughout his life. One year um, after a new year's Eve party, Eddie got into an argument with his wife. He took a large amount of that GHB drug and decided to drive to a store. He ended up falling asleep at the wheel and drove his Trans Am off of an embankment. Eddie was seriously injured and during his rehabilitation, he became addicted to pain meds on top of the other substances that he regularly used before the accident. Over time and battles with addiction and rehabilitation, um, Eddie was able to get clean. By 2005, though, the damage to Eddie's system was done. On November 13th, Eddie passed away in a hotel room. His cause of death was officially labeled as a heart attack due to heart disease caused by a lengthy history of anabolic steroid usage and usage of narcotics medication. Upon hearing about Eddie's death, Chris Benoit's mental state had become permanently altered. Those who knew Chris the best have all said that looking back, this was the turning point of Chris's mental descent. This was what everybody thinks was the beginning of the end. Chris became, it was like he was in a permanent state of bereavement, people said. In a tribute show, wrestlers gave speeches on camera about Eddie's contribution to the sport. And when it was Chris's turn, the camera was rolling when Chris completely lost his composure and could not even speak to commemorate his friend. Like he got everything out that he wanted to say, but he was literally wailing like a grown man on camera, crying out loud um, at the death of his friend. Chris's family and friends were all concerned for him. His wife, Nancy, bought him a journal telling him that sometimes writing the things you want to say to Eddie down might help alleviate some of your pain. Um, And this is exactly what Chris did. However, it was his diary... So nobody else read it until after Chris had died. Um, his dad, Mike, has only shown a few like short paragraphs over the years. But he said that all of the entries were addressed directly to Eddie. He talked about his wife, who was his best friend. Um, he talked about his son, Daniel, who's the light of his life. Chris would also quote scripture a lot, uh, to which his dad said was strange behavior for Chris. He wasn't an overly religious person. Chris also began showing signs of paranoia. He moved his family to a gated mansion property in Fayetteville, Georgia. Um, He bought two trained German shepherd guard dogs. He enrolled his son into a secure school. Um, Nancy wasn't allowed leaving the house by herself past 6 p.m. And Chris would often take different routes to and from regular errand destinations uh, just to make sure he wasn't being followed. Uh, Chris was still a stout professional, though. He was still dedicated and a loyal employee to Vince McMahon. He never missed a match. 
After Eddie's death, the WWE implemented the wellness program that was meant to encourage performers to stay clean and off of steroid use. Nancy Benoit had a low opinion of the WWE's wellness program. In text found on Chris's phone, Nancy had said, I will not accept this steroid-induced roller coaster ride of emotional abuse. Ignoring the problem or running away isn't going to help you face it. You need professional help, and only if you're fully honest about all of it. Get off the stuff. I am probably not the only one who can see it, and we both know the wellness program is a joke. So she knew. Yeah. She was over it. She was over it. Yeah, I bet. She had the brunt of it. So by 2006, the couple was fighting regularly. Nancy wanted Chris to retire, and they made a business plan to start a wrestling school in their name and even having merchandise made. Chris, however, found it difficult to break ties with the WWE and being in the ring. It's all he'd ever known. It's the only thing that ever earned him a paycheck. Family said later that they thought he was too scared to move on. Um, but this called, this caused more strain on their marriage. Nancy also thought that Chris was having an affair with another female wrestler. And from what I could find, uh, Chris had always denied the accusations. A longtime friend and fellow wrestler, Johnny Grunge, lived very close to the Benoits and would often be called during arguments. Uh, Johnny had a way about him that could de-escalate these arguments. It was a common occurrence until February 16th, 2006, when Johnny died at the age of 39. He died as a result of sleep apnea complications, which was most likely caused by a coronary artery blockage due to obesity. But he was also a pain medication user and a steroid user and an alcohol drinker. So after the death of Johnny Grunge, the Benoit couple had nowhere to turn when things were going bad in their home. So they had no outlet, no nobody to kind of step in and calm things down. Mike Benoit said that Nancy voiced concern to him about Chris's behavior, but nobody knew what to do. The WWE had such a hold on him, and he had withdrawn himself from his family, friends, and the public eye outside of the ring. Um, after the tragedy, people said that their son Daniel had autism or uh, fragile X syndrome. Uh, the speculation was that this caused even more strain on their relationship and that Chris may have been injecting his son with growth hormone. Oh, my God. Uh, it's been dispelled, though, by the family and the boy's teachers. Uh, Daniel was small for his age, but so was his dad. Um, but he was a bright, well-adjusted seven-year-old with no known physical or developmental abnorm abnormalities. So it was all just rumors, I think. Um, with even more deaths between 2005 and 2007 that we haven't brought up here and we're not going to, um, Chris's perpetual state of grief only got worse. He wrote in his diary to Eddie regularly, and then on June 15th, 2007, which is a week before this happened, Sherry Martell, who had been a friend to Chris and Nancy, as well as Nancy's ex-husband, Kevin Sullivan, had died from an accidental overdose. She'd taken too many oxys with alcohol. She was 49 years old. So I wonder, was this the breaking point? I wonder, because just like I said, one week later, Chris would begin a sequence of events that would completely shake his friends, family, and the massive uh, wrestling community, and really the world. It changed a lot. So make sure you join us tomorrow for part two.
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share with your friends. If you don't mind giving us a five-star rating, it will help our show grow. Check out our TikTok where you can find interesting photos and content on all released episodes. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube at True Crime Story Podcast where the discussion can continue. If you wish to contact us, you may do so via email at truecrimestorypod at gmail.com. I'm Bree. And I'm Char. And we'll see you in the next chapter. Bye. Bye.